a few years ago, Gene uh, and I were asked to help uh, participate in a, sort of a marriage counseling, kind of a mediation thing. Husband and wife were uh, uh, disagreeing over something. We were asked to, to sort of pitch in and, and, and bring what we could uh, to the table to help out. And, uh, um, and uh, actually, if you're, <laughs> if you're wondering if this is you, this story is kind of a hybrid. It's you and about five others. Um, but uh, anyway, what happened in the story uh, was when we got there, it was kind of awkward because husband and wife were kind of, um, there was this hostility in the room because they were angry at one another. But a couple hours later, by the time we left, their hostility towards one another had abated, and it turned out they were both angry with me. Um, in fact, quite angry with me. And as we were leaving, uh, Gina says, uh, oh, boy, that was bad. And we got back in the car. And I said, uh, well, you know, I think they found some common ground. Uh, and so uh, we're, on the, we're on the way back here. Uh, and the point of the story, what's this have to do with Obadiah? Obadiah is about Edom. And Edom is a nation south of Israel um, that got involved in the struggle between God and Israel. And see, just as I learned that in a lover's quarrel, if you're going to stick your nose in that, you need to be extra sensitive and perhaps have more training than I've had. Um, Edom learned the hard way that when they got involved in God's chastisement of Israel, they were involved in a lover's quarrel. And uh, the Lord chastised his people uh, in the Old Testament. Israel disobeyed, and there were times where it looks like Israel is contending with God and God's dealing harshly with Israel. But then Edom jumps in and piles on their own two cents worth on top of Israel. And when God finishes dealing with Israel, he turns to Edom. And there's redemption for Israel, but there's none for Edom. Uh, it's bad news for them. This is a gloomy little book of, of a prophecy of destruction for a nation that, that got involved in a struggle between God and his people, and they didn't belong. And when God... Put, uh, finished dealing with Israel, he dealt with Edom, and he dealt with them very harshly indeed. Um, why are we going to study this book? A uh, couple reasons. One is it's there. I think we, uh, we tend to kind of get in a rut. And, you know, when you're studying the Gospels or Paul's letters, that's no, those are very practical and, and applicable, and the stories are great. Um, but uh, there's so much in the Bible that if we're just doing kind of what comes naturally or listening to Christian radio or doing what's next in the devotion book, we, uh, we don't get to. Um, how many of you have heard a sermon on Obadiah recently? Yeah, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever heard one. I, I read it before when I was doing read through the Bible thing, but I don't, I've never taught on it. I've never listened to teaching on it. And so for me, it was just kind of curiosity. Uh, I wanted to do a prophet, uh, a, a prophetic Old Testament prophet on uh, either side of the parable series. And I picked Obadiah for no better reason than it was the shortest uh, it's, uh, I thought, ah, shortest, let's take a look at that, see what's in there. But when I got into there, I found that this is more than just some history lesson about a nation uh, that, that got on the wrong side of God's will. But there is application in here for a church congregation in January of 2008. It's a, about a 2,500-year-old book. And you'd think, what does this gloomy little prophecy of doom have to do with us? But it teaches us when we get to the end, we're going to see that there are truths about God that we learn in this book that are for all time. And more importantly, there are tr or more significantly for you and me, there are truths about God's people that are true 2,500 years ago and today and for all time. And so let's look at what those are. Take a, um, a little background on Obadiah. 
very common name in the Old Testament. There are at least 12 different guys in the Old Testament named Obadiah. And un- unless this guy who wrote this book is one of those 12, then there are 13. And there's no definite connection between this guy and, and the other 12 that you see. It literally means the name worshiper or servant of Yahweh. And uh, the timing is a little uncertain. The most plausible theory for when the timing occurred, uh, uh, I believe, is around 585 B.C., which is right after Babylon came down to Jerusalem and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Let's take a look at uh, Obadiah in context. I'll give you a 40-second history of the nation of Israel. God called Abraham 2000 B.C. to go from Ur to Canaan. He went. He had some sons. Isaac was the son of the promise, and he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the son of the promise. He had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was the second youngest, saved him from the drought, took him to Egypt, right? Remember that story? And then Egyptians liked him, then they didn't, and then they enslaved him, and then Moses brought him out, and that's the Exodus. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then Joshua takes them into the promised land. And then they uh, have the period of the judges, sort of the dark ages of Israel's history. We did a series on that a year or two ago. And then they decide they want a king like all the other countries. And the golden age of Israel is 1000 BC, Saul, David, and Solomon. Israel was as politically strong and big as it's ever been under the reign of Solomon about 3000 years ago. And then after Solomon comes his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, Rehoboam was like Israel's Abraham Lincoln if Abraham Lincoln had lost the Civil War. Does that make sense? A couple of, of tribes secede from Israel and say, we don't want to be part of Israel anymore. Rehoboam goes to war to force him back in and loses. And so now there's a divided kingdom. The 10 tribes of the north or the northern kingdom, they're still called Israel. And the two tribes in the south or the southern kingdom, they're called Judah. And this is where Obadiah comes in. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722 BC and the southern kingdom of, uh, is conquered by Babylon in 586 BC. And maybe right after that is when Obadiah writes this prophecy. And then you probably know that they're, the, the Israelites are taken into exile, but then God allows them to return, and that's a couple hundred years before Jesus comes. So that's, that's the Old Testament, well, the nation history of Israel in about a minute, right? So let's start with Obadiah, uh, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, and let us go against her for battle. So this prophecy is mostly not about Israel. It's mostly about the neighboring country called Edom. Edom, And Edom is actually a synonym for Esau. And Esau, maybe you recall, was Jacob's twin brother. So let's go back and look at how the brothers affected the nations. Isaac, remember, had twin sons. And this is, I think, back in Genesis. I know it's back in Genesis. Uh, this story ends around Genesis 27. Remember, Jacob was the... Uh, sort of conniving, scheming mama's boy, and Esau was the big hairy hunter who his dad preferred. And Esau, they were twins, Esau was just slightly older than Jacob, so according to Israelite law, he was going to inherit the promise. But Jacob tricked him a couple times, traded him a bowl of soup for his birthright, and then did this disguise thing where he put on the the hairy clothes so he'd smell and feel like his big brother, and he he tricked his dad and his brother and stole Esau's blessing. You've heard that story before, I, I, I believe. And so these are the guys we're talking about. Jacob becomes Israel. God changes his name to Israel, and his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you read the word Jacob or Israel, they're synonyms. Jacob the person is the father of Jacob the, of Israel the nation. Esau, similarly, is also 
the father of a great nation, and that nation becomes called Edom. And so Esau and Edom in this book are synonyms. And maybe you recall this kind of a sad story in the Bible. Esau walks in to Isaac to be blessed. Dad's on his deathbed, and he realizes that Isaac says, you know, he starts shaking and weeping. He says, I've already blessed. I've already given the blessing, and he gave it to, to Jacob instead of Esau. And Esau's just, just devastated by this. And he says, bless me too. And uh, if we look in Genesis 27, starting with 39, we can see the blessing. Isaac said, I've given the best blessing, but I'll give you what I got. Here's the blessing. His father Isaac answered him, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off from, or you will throw his yoke from off your neck. So this one comes true. Saul and David, they attack Edom, and they take control of it later on, around 1000 BC. But then when weaker kings come along, Edom tries to, to win their independence and tries to break free. Let's go, ahead, let's go back and tell the whole story. Edom actually grew into a stronger nation before Israel. They had a monarchy before Israel did. By the time Moses is leading Israel on the exodus out of Egypt and back to the promised land, Edom's a pretty strong country. In fact, maybe you recall this story from the book of Exodus. When Moses comes up to the nation of Edom, in fact, let's look at it on the map. Uh, let's see where Edom is compared to the promised land. If you see the Salt Sea up in the top right, what we would call the Dead Sea, just south of that is Edom. And Israel determines, Moses determines, that's going to be the best way for us to go to the promised land. So he goes to the, sends a message to the leaders of Edom and says, we don't want to mess with you. Now Israel's you know, over two million people now traveling through the wilderness. It's kind of a scary sight seeing two million guys coming your way. And, and Moses says, we don't want to mess with you. We just want to pass through on the way to the promised land. And what's Edom's answer? No. In fact, no way. Not only can you not pass through our land, but if you come anywhere close, we're going to attack you. So Israel goes around and, and eventually goes to the promised land, and they subdue the promised land. But uh, Israel and Edom have enmity. They're, they're at strife. They're against one another pretty much throughout their history. So Israel sets up this kingdom, and by the time we get to this book, there's a divided kingdom. We look at that map. Israel's in the north, and Judah is in the south. And if, uh, for a point of reference, take a look at the, the Salt Sea. It's the, the bottom center of this map. We call that the Dead Sea, and that's really the southern end of Israel. And now notice that it's the northern end of the next map. This is the kingdom of Edom, and it's directly due south of Israel and Judah. And uh, let's take a look at a photo. When I think of Edom, I picture this desert wasteland, a bunch of shepherds out and a bunch of nothing. Um, but they actually had some strong fortress towers built into the rocks. There's some rocky land around there. And at some point in their history, they had some pretty significant buildings, fortress towers built into the rock. And I have a photo here of a treasury building in the capital city. It's called Sela sometimes and Petra other times. And it was built into the rocky cliffs. And that's part of the reason that <clears throat> Edom was so confident that they could never be conquered because their land was kind of in this rocky fortress. And now that they'd built their fort up there, who's going to climb the mountain and take them out of their rocky fortress? So they were pretty confident about that, but they shouldn't have been. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? So Edom, very haughtily saying, who can bring me down? And, of course, we know the answer. God's going to bring them down. This 
book follows the pattern of a typical Hebrew prophecy almost. If you look at an Old Testament prophecy, usually there are four parts. There's the charges against specific sins. We see that here. There's the pronouncement of divine judgment. Because you did this bad thing, this is the bad thing that's going to happen to you. Usually, there's a call to repentance. Not here. There's no call to repentance for Edom. A couple possible reasons for that. My theory is the deed was done. They messed with Israel, now they're going to pay. Um, and so it's having done it, it's too late for them to repent of it and stop doing it. And then uh, there are promises of restoration to the remnant. There are no such promises here to Edom, but when we get to the end of the book, there is promise of restoration to the remnant of Israel. So we will see that in this book. The sins of Edom, I would sum up two ways. Um, early in the book, um, early in you know, the, the one chapter, uh, we see them identified. Verse 2 says Edom had pride. Looking for application uh, to the 21st century United States? We're a prideful nation. Um, Edom was violent against Israel. It says that in verse 10. Yeah, it's harder to find that in the United States today. But uh, we could surely uh, be guilty or tempted towards the one. And then the book's going to go into specific sins later on. Let's go back to verse 6. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of your violence against your brother Jacob, remember, that's the nation Israel, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. The consequences that God announces to, to Edom against his, uh, or through his prophet Obadiah are detailed and numerous. Let's take a look at them. You're going to be made small, it says in verse 2. You're going to be despised, ransacked, pillaged, deceived, overpowered, and trapped. It takes another slide to list all the consequences. You're going to be destroyed, terrified, cut down, covered with shame. Not only destroyed, but destroyed forever. It says later in the book there will be no survivors. This is a horrible prophecy against Edom, and it comes true. Starting with verse, four, verse 12, we get kind of poetic. This is a poem. That's why I titled this Dirge of Doom. It's like a funeral poem for the nation of Edom. Uh, and not only, um, Obadiah is not the only Old Testament the prophet. Uh, it was kind of a popular thing for Old Testament prophets to, to, to pronounce judgment against Edom. And, and so you can find that in several of the Old Testament prophets. But um, notice the repetition here, how many different ways Obadiah has for saying Israel's having a bad day. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity on the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So, it's the day of misfortune, the day of their destruction, the day of their trouble, the day of their disaster. All, all different ways Obadiah says they're having a rough time. They're having a rough time because God sent Babylon to punish them, right? And then Obadiah points out to us, uh, or we can learn from the nation of Edom, things not to do when Israel's down. Uh, in fact, there were eight things that Edom did that they shouldn't have done, and God's mad at them because of doing it. You shouldn't look down on your neighbor when they're having a bad time, especially if they're God's people. You shouldn't rejoice in their calamity. You shouldn't boast. You shouldn't march through their gates, take advantage of the weakness to go pillage some on your own. You shouldn't look down on them in their calamity. You shouldn't seize their wealth. 
Edom waited at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives and even handed over their survivors. So not only did Edom not do anything to help protect Israel from their destruction, but they kind of ganged up. They, they allied with Babylon and sort of went to get some of the pillage for themselves. So pretty much Israel was down, and Edom took advantage and kicked them while they were down. And the Lord is not pleased with that. And that's why Obadiah is announcing his judgment. Now we get to verse 15, and in verse 15, I think we find a universal truth. This is one of those things that you can find all over Scripture. It accounts for now, it counts for then, it counts for every time in between. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. Jesus is coming soon. Now, it says that in the Bible, and that was 2,000 years ago, and so you might think, well, how soon is that? It's coming soon for me. Um, If I live 20 more years, I will have outlived my father and my grandfather. And so... I really don't like to think about the fact that 20 years might be the end. Of course, I want to try to do stuff to, to, to be here as long as, I can, as God's called me to be here. And the, the question for me isn't when it's going to end for me, but what I'm going to do between now and then. Because at the end of my life here, I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account. You know, how'd you spend your time? And uh, the day of the Lord is near for all nations, and it's, it's near for all people. And I don't know how close we are to hearing that trumpet and the Lord returning to us. But uh, I'm within a few decades of standing before the Lord. The, the, the end's that near for me. And if you're older than me, it's probably nearer for you. And if you're younger than me, it's a little bit longer for you, but not that much longer, right? Now, here's the part. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Have you read anything like this in the Bible before? As you have done, it will be done to you. This came true. Babylon conquered Judah in 586 B.C. Just a few years later, they attacked Edom. And then, um, about a century later, a tribal group called the Nabataeans invaded Edom, absorbed part of them, exiled part of them, and the exiled part went to the southern part of Israel and became known as a group called the Idumeans. And we can see them on this map because the Maccabees came along about 100 years before Jesus and conquered the whole territory. And if we look at this map of the kingdom of the Maccabees, again, right next to the Salt Sea, just to the west, you can see Idumea, it looks like. That's Edom. That's what's left of them. And then what's left of them now? Nothing. Because what happened is the Romans came along, took over the whole area, destroyed the whole region in the Jewish-Roman War around A.D. 70. The, a remnant of Jews were scattered and, and ultimately returned, and the nation of Israel is still a nation today. But uh, have you met any Edomites lately? There's, there are no Edomites. Edomite, the Edomites did not survive. There were no survivors, according to this prophecy and according to history. But what's the universal truth that we can grasp? Crime punishes itself. Um, I, I'm not going to read all these scriptures. You can look them up later. They'll be on the website if you'd like to see. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that's the eye for eye, tooth for tooth stuff. Uh, Proverbs says it similarly. Um, let's take a look at the way Psalm uh, 7 says it. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. And then Jesus said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then Paul pretty much sums it up in this, um, the same principle in his uh, letter to the Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is essentially... A, um, 600 years later, Paul's writing the same truth that Obadiah is writing about Edom. As you've done, it will, you know, what you sow is what you're going to reap. That's a truth that's for you and me today just as much as it's for the people of, the, of Palestine, of the Near East, 
you know, 2,500 years ago. Now we make a transition in the book. Uh, the last five verses of the book are not about Edom anymore. Obadiah's pronounced God's judgment. It's going to be bad for them. It's going to be very bad for them. And we know historically that came true. Then he turns his attention to Israel and says, but God has a plan for you. Verse, 20, or verse 16, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. So this is going to happen to Edom. Now, remember, when, when Obadiah wrote this, in all likelihood, Israel had just lost to the Babylonians. They'd just been conquered, carried off in exile. So there really is no nation of Israel when, when Obadiah is writing this. And yet Obadiah says, Jacob will possess its inheritance. Israel will come back. Has that prophecy come true? It sort of has, and it's ultimately going to come true. And then... Let's skip down to the end. Verse 21 says this, Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now that's a universal promise for all time. Remember when we studied Romans 9, 10, and 11, we learned that the promises of God for Israel transfer to the church today, and the warnings of God for Israel transfer to the church today. And so we can learn from the book of Obadiah things about God that would apply to us that we need to know today, and we can also learn from the book of Obadiah things about ourselves that would apply today. Let's take a look at what we've learned about God. Obadiah says he is the sovereign Lord. Now, that's absolutely true, and if, that, you know, if, if that's the place we need to start, let's, let's be sure to start there. He notices and logs injustice. You know, so many of us, not just in our generation, but throughout history, are, are impatient with God's justice. David and Jeremiah said, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? And we wonder, you know, why, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And, and we, we want to know why God doesn't, doesn't make things right in our time rather than in his time. But the Bible makes it plain that God will administer divine justice, and in his time it, it will be administered. Then God co controls the destinies of nations. You know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and God uses the just and the unjust to accomplish his purposes. And this is the most important thing that we learn about God from Obadiah. He will prevail. If you want to be all spiritual, this would be a good time for you to say amen. He will prevail. Now what about us? What's Obadiah teach us about you and me? First of all, this is kind of easy. Don't mess with Israel. That seems pretty sensible. I, I don't want to be rampaging through their gates. When I hear that trumpet, I don't want to be raising my hand against Israel in any way. That seems pretty sad. Again, the universal principle we talked about, as you have done, it will be done to you. What are you sowing today? What kind of harvest do you want to reap you know, five years from now, ten years from now, with your marriage, with your children, with your career, with your spiritual life? What do you want us to say about you at your funeral? What do you want the Lord to say when you meet him face to face? What are you sowing today? And then uh, Obadiah identifi identifies pretty clearly some bad things I want to try to avoid. Uh, ridicule, especially ridicule of God's people. Pride and materialism, these are all things that we're tempted. I mean, our, our society today, it, it's, it's a fairly common thing, even among believers, to ridicule other believers who don't do it the way we do it or we don't like their style or, or, or for whatever reason. I'm, it doesn't look to me like Obadiah is for that. Um, pride and materialism, well, those would define our nation today, it seems to me, are two of our defining characteristics. Those definitely are sins that we've been tempted to fall into, and Obadiah warns us from it. Beware of opposing God's people. Now, you see this out in the world today. The world attacks believers. The world attacks the church. 
But I also see this some in the church. Like people who go to a church like this sometimes find it very easy to be critical of other churches, bigger churches, for example. And I've had people walk in here and say, oh, this is, uh, I like it here. But they'll start naming off quite loudly, uncomfortably loudly, their grievances against some other church. And uh, I'm not for that. Um, I don't think Obadiah is for that. If God's chosen people to, to, to do a ministry and, and seems to be blessing that, well, I, we're entitled to opinions, I think, about what we like and what kind of style we like and what we enjoy. And I have those opinions, too. But uh, I hope you won't find me speaking publicly against someone God's chosen to do his work because I don't want to do that. Uh, I don't want to be found in opposition to people God has chosen. Uh, for, uh, according to Obadiah, God's not for that. And then finally, we can count on God to deliver his people. If you're considering opposing God's people, that's a bad plan because <laughs> they're going to win. If, on the other hand, you, can, you consider yourself to be one of God's people and you feel like you're opposed, well, you ought to be able to take great comfort from this because you know, we've read to the end of the book and your side wins. Uh, if you are one of God's people and you feel like you're under oppression and you need, you need deliverance, well, count on it. It's coming. God will prevail. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, uh, for this truth from your word. Lord, I thank you that in this gloomy little prophecy of doom, we can find uh, truths that apply to our lives. Lord, I ask that you would help us to apply these. I ask that you'd help us to renounce uh, pride and imperialism and ridicule of those you've called. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to be that faithful remnant that look to your deliverance. Lord, we trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.